Now you'll forgive me. It's a it's a little dim in here, and the, the reason for is I've got a, a key light here that's acting a little wonky on me. So please forgive me on that. No, it looks good. It looks just like your show, Brett. Like it looks like uh, <laughs> it looks good. Um, yeah. So let me let, let me just start by saying thank you, Brett. I, again, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk to us at uh, at CSI. So again, thank you very much for uh, for for joining us. As we just talked about, you're a busy guy who no, does no, a lot of uh, a keynotes and everything like that. So again, we really appreciate you taking to the time today at, uh, at CSI. But the way I need to start with our conversation is actually with an apology right off the top. So like right off the top, I need to, I need to apologize. I don't normally start these with, a, with an I'm sorry, Brett, but I need to start <laughs> this one with, a, with an I'm sorry because I screwed up is that when I was, when I was teasing your appearance at, at CSI, I've been teasing your appearance for like, like, uh, like a month. Out to the out to the team members. I said, "Oh, you're going to love our next guest," and they said, "Well, who is it?" I said, "Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you a story." I said, "Look, have you seen Catch Me If You Can?" And the team members, in almost every single case, would come back and say, "Absolutely, I've seen Catch Me If You Can. It's a it's a very popular movie." And then I would say to them, "Okay, well, do you know Frank Abagnale?" And they would say, "Oh yeah, absolutely. We know Frank Abagnale. He's the guy that." You know, committed all those crimes at an early stage. Um, you know, then then got caught by the FBI, and then turned to be you know helped the FBI, and then turned out to be a good guy. I said, "Is that your the, the story of your next guest?" I said, "Well, it's pretty close." I said, "Well, Brett, you know, started his life of crime pretty early." I said, "You know," and then he went into cybercrime. He was caught. Brett's relationship with the U.S. Secret Service was a little different. He had a little bit of a wrinkle <laughs> towards the towards the end, which we'll which we'll which we'll talk about in a in a minute. Um, but then he turned his life around and was also a good guy. Now, what I didn't then realize is I was watching one of the interviews you did, and I was watching in horror as you then went on to say that you do not like you are not a fan of Frank Abagnale. You're not a big fan of him at all. You are probably not too happy with this comparison that I've been that I've been sharing for the last like you know four weeks as we've gotten ready for for today. So the question that I have that I'm sure the group will be keen to know as well is you know Frank you have a relationship with Frank. What is your issue with uh, with Frank Abagnale? Because I'll bet you most of the people on the line have probably seen the have probably seen the movie. Sure, and so, so it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> as, as most relationships are, it's complicated. Um, I, 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 I'm really conflicted over the entire Frank Abagnale story that that as it's coming to fruition today. And the reason is, is that when I was a criminal, when I got caught, I was arrested February 8th of 2005. When I was caught, I always had in the back of my head that, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm able to turn my life around, I can do what Frank Abagnale has done, you know, become that speaker, become that consultant. So that that catch me if you can story has been in the back of my head forever. And as a matter of fact, I want to be I want to be clear and, and, and forthright here. If not for Frank Abagnale and the catch me if you can story, I really don't believe that I would be where I am today. I wow. don't believe that because uh, that that story gave me that 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 motivation and that idea that I could do it. And then later on, it was, it was my sister, it was my wife, Michelle, and then finally the FBI that gave me that validation of being able to do that. Now, that being said, it turns out, <laughs> that, it turns out that the entire 
catch me if you can story was a lie. Wow. None of it happened. And I'm not just pulling that out of my ass. None of that happened. There's a guy named Alan Logan. He wrote a book called The Greatest uh, The Greatest Hoax. And it's about Frank Abagnale. He went through his entire history and every single thing that he that he told. Uh, flying planes. No, he didn't fly planes. He rode in the jump seat a little bit. He was never, he never pretended to be a pediatrician. He, the, the hospital didn't exist at that point in time. Wow. He, he never passed the bar exam. He never stole $2.5 million through check fraud, more like twenty dollars or $30,000. I mean, every single aspect of that story was false. Uh, Alan Logan wrote the book on it. There's a guy named uh, um, Javier LeVay. He does the Pretend Podcast. Uh, he, he actually goes through in the Pretend Podcast. He talks to some of Frank Abagnale's victims. He pulls the paperwork, all those stories that Frank Abagnale told. He couldn't have done it because wow. he was in prison during those years that he claimed he did it. So, and he was in prison for stealing cars, for uh, writing bad checks on people, not on Pan Am. I mean, all these different things. So, I mean, I'm very conflicted <laughs> because it, it turns out, yeah, the, the catch me if you can story was false. That being said, He's been a con man lying about this stuff for 30 years plus. So yeah. it's been very effective. Um, so that that's in the back of my head. Um, at the same time, I want people to understand that that Frank Abagnale has absolutely done a lot of good on this planet. Um, he was, uh, Javier actually uh, did like an ambush interview with Frank Abagnale coming back from a presentation. And um, Frank Abagnale says during that little ambush bit that you know he hopes that people would not remember him for what he did back 40 years ago but for the things he's done since that point and i have to give the man credit he's absolutely uh raised awareness he's he's done a lot of good security work um but you know at the end of the day the the story itself was not true and where i take exception to a lot of this is that frank abagnale has pretended to be a criminal who's turned his life around. And, and where that's valuable to the cybersecurity industry is that criminal mindset. If you, a lot of people are paying or wanting to understand how criminals operate, get the criminal insight, that mindset, that view. Because yeah. if you don't understand your enemy, how do you hope to mitigate or defeat your enemy? And, and that, that's something that Frank Abagnale has advertised, but he's not really been able to deliver that he delivers his insights and views and opinions are coming from the good guy side over 30 years of security work not from the criminal side like someone like me or matt cox or someone else has where yep. you've got 30 years of being that expert criminal so I, that's where i take exception then i like i said i'm i'm, I'm conflicted because uh, he absolutely his story Turned my helped turn my life around, but at the same time, the um, he's done a lot of damage, I believe, to the cybersecurity industry by pretending to uh, to be this guy that he's not. Yeah, that's no, interesting, and uh, yeah, and and like I said, you can go and you can watch a lot of podcasts and read a lot of stuff that validates. You, you, there, there's one story I read where he was he was in the middle of a graduate. A graduation uh, commencement speech and they almost walked him off the stage at that point um yeah. because people were calling him out it's uh, no it was it was quite yeah, surprising was, um, to give you to give you a clue the, the last i was at the um 
the Ohio ACFE conference uh, about six weeks ago. I was uh, one of the keynotes. Javier LeVay was one of the keynotes. And Frank Abagnale was going to be the main keynote until he found out that we were both going to be there as well. And at that point, he decided to drop from the conference. So wow. he, he's absolutely aware of what's going on. And he, he just is running from the problem. And, you know, truthfully, the man's 75. He yeah. could just come out and say, you know what? I said it. It was not true. You know, I'm sorry about it. But that's the way things are because he's 75. He's he's done his job. He's he's like I said, he's done a lot of good on this planet. I, I don't see the problem with just admitting it at this point. Absolutely. Anyway. Probably get a lot off your chest as well, you know, Absolutely. just in terms of everything that, that you hold on to. So well, you think about it. I mean, it's it's and I'm sorry we going on we're going on about this, but you're right. I mean, that's that's a lot of stress to have on you. That that idea that at any moment you could be called out. Absolutely. So do that. Just get it out. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give a short background to yourself, Brett, um, and we're going to get into the uh, the details. But um, but again, thanks for joining us today. Brett Johnson, he is formerly of the uh, the U.S. Most Wanted, referred to by the U.S. Secret Service as the original Internet godfather, a great, a great term. He's a specialist in cybercrime, identity, identity theft, IRS fraud. He's a master social engineer, which we're going to talk about. He was um, uh, he committed his crimes. He was captured. He was hired by the U.S. Secret Service. He screwed over the U.S. Secret Service. He was uh, he was uh, then captured, imprisoned, broke out from prison, um, imprisoned again, and now turned uh, and now turned good guy. And as we talked about at the beginning, um, he spends his time doing lots of, of keynotes. He's got the Brett Johnson Show on YouTube, which is excellent. I've watched several of the episodes there. They're a great watch. And you're also a consultant to uh, to companies out there as well. So um, again, thanks thanks a bunch for uh, for joining us uh, today, Brett. Um, no, thank you. And and maybe just to start things off early, uh, to 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 start things off in your early days, is maybe just talk a little bit about you know your your childhood, where you grew up, um, you know, and and your relationship with your parents, because I think I'm going to talk mentioned I'm going to talk a little bit about this as well. But that those early days really had a profound impact, at least on the, the early part of your life. But maybe just start off with the, you know, your, 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 your days growing up and, and how you kind of cross paths into the life of being, uh, being a criminal. Sure. So um, where, where to start? <laughs> I'll, I'll start like I do in my presentations. Um, you know, my, my, jeez, um, man. I mean, that's, that's one of these questions that it hits me every single time. It's not like it's the first time I've, I've spoken about this stuff. I'm from Eastern Kentucky, and it's important to say that because uh, the the economy in Eastern Kentucky, if you're not fortunate enough to have a job, and you know it's coal based, so Eastern Kentucky is right in the heart of coal country, so so the entire economy tends to survive based on how the coal industry is going. So if you're not fortunate enough to have a job, so unemployment's very high. If you're not fortunate enough to have a job, you may be involved in some sort of scam hustle fraud whatever you want to call it my mom my mom was basically the uh, the captain of the, that entire fraud industry my my crimes my life of crime began when i was 10 years old um like i said i'm from eastern kentucky hazard kentucky so if you've watched cnn over the past year and you saw all those floods in kentucky that's yep. my hometown that epicenter was my hometown wow um where I mean, it's it's one of those things where my mom was the criminal. 
I didn't know it until I was, you know, around 10. My dad, and this, this is the really conflicted part for me these days, is uh, over the past several years, I've, I've painted my dad because I really thought that I, I painted my dad as, as the good guy. You know, he, he was the guy that, uh, that loved my mom so much that he would co-sign off on any type of crime she wanted to commit. If she wanted to abuse someone and she was very abusive, he wouldn't step in the way because he was scared of her leaving. The problem is, is that my dad has been living with me for about eight, nine months now because he can't take care of himself anymore. And this is the first time in, I'm 53, this is the first time in 50 some years that I've really gotten the opportunity to know my father. And it turns out that my dad is just one of those people that didn't care. And that is a very hard pill for me to swallow when you consider that my mom, uh, when I was growing up, my mom, was, like I said, she was very abusive. I mean, she could be physical and, and her heart wasn't in the physicality, but she could be physical. And she used to, uh, when she would whip me and Denise with a belt or, uh, you know, switches or a belt buckle, uh, it, it was with force, you know, it was yeah. more than just, than just doing it uh, as, as some parents do. It was, it was with force and out of anger. And that, that continued until my sister, I guess Denise was probably 11, maybe 10 or 11, something like that. Uh, I remember mom was, was beating her with a belt buckle and uh, my sister kicked her through a closet and uh, told my mom that's the last time that you'll ever touch me and it was so my mom could be physical but my mom my mom's abuse was mostly the the mental the verbal the emotional um, i've told this story before there was a there was a point we were in panama city florida before my mom leaves my dad we were in panama city and um, my dad the only job he could get was as a midnight clerk at a convenience store so he was gone. My mom was at the house. Me and Denise were in the in, in my bedroom playing Atari. That's when you had Atari back then. Uh, we were playing Atari, and I heard my mom yell for us. So we 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 go to answer her, and uh, she's in the living room. She's got all the lights turned out. She's got candles burning. She's got incense burning, and she's got these two chairs from the dining room set up in the middle of the living room floor, and the chairs are facing each other. And she proceeds to tell us, she was like, "I have sold my soul." to Satan so you and your sister can have a good life. And wow. now now I'm, you know, nine, 10 years old. Denise <laughs> is a year younger. That sounds insane when you're an adult. When you're a child, that doesn't sound so crazy, <laughs> you know, because you trust the adults that are there. You're supposed to believe in these adults. So my mom says she sold her soul to Satan, but we have to prove that we're worthy. And the idea is, is that Satan's going to let us, uh, you know, let, make sure that we uh, that we go through college and we have good lives. And at that point in time, Satan's going to call my mom home. All right. Wow. So but we have to prove we're worthy. And, and the, the way we prove that is my mom sits in one chair and me and Denise take turns sitting in the other chair. We make eye contact. You can't blink. You make eye contact. And she lets Satan come out through her eyes. And we're supposed to think happy Jesus thoughts to keep from becoming possessed. And we did this stuff for hours, wow. for hours and more than just one day. And this, this is, this is kind of the stuff that goes on. There was another uh, instance where my mom and dad, they would argue all the time. And um, I they had this king size bed in their, in their, in their bedroom. 
and they would spend hours a day reading um, when they weren't arguing. But uh, I remember uh, mom called me and Denise in, into the bedroom and they had been arguing. Mom was on one side of the bed. Dad was on the other. Mom was on the side that was closest to the wall. And uh, she calls us in. I remember my dad, my dad, one of my dad's favorite statements was, please, Carolyn, stop, just stop, just stop, please don't. And that's what he was saying. And my mom calls me and my sister over and I, I go in front of my sister kind of trying to protect her, you know, a little bit. And my, uh, so we're standing in this little cubby hole beside the bed and the wall. And uh, my mom's like, you know, you know, your mother loves you. And we're like, yes, mom. I'm going to show you how much I love you. And she used to, she used to smoke these more cigarettes, these long brown menthol cigarettes. And uh, what she does is, and again, we're, you know, nine, 10 years old at this point. What she does is she takes a cigarette and she pretends she doesn't do it. She pretends to burn herself on her arm. So, and you can see it because the cigarette's like, you know, an inch, two inches away from the arm. And she's sitting there writhing and screaming like it's burning herself. My dad is, please, Carolyn, stop, just stop. Me and Denise are watching this. And she's like, this is, she's screaming, this is how much I love you. And, and as a child, and I still have that same thought today as a child, I remember thinking that, well, she's not really burning herself. So she must not really love us because that's the way a child's mind works. And that, that's the type of environment that I grew up in. And that was constant. This is a woman who uh, she would tell us that uh, she had given up her life for us, that she was going to leave and not come back, that uh, we'd find her dead some, someday in a ditch, something like that. And, and so I became the child that got the worst parts from my mom and my dad. From my mom, I got that criminal mindset uh, from my dad. I got that fear of the people that I love leaving. So, and my mom leaves my dad. My mom used to bring men home in front of my dad. My dad would sit there and cry and beg her not to do it. Of course, she would do it anyway. Finally, she uh, she leaves the man. I was around 10 years old. My sister, Denise, a year younger. We moved from uh, Panama City back to Hazard, Kentucky. And my mom, she would uh, she liked to party a lot. So sometimes she'd take me and Denise with her. She'd leave us in the car. Sometimes we'd wait in the living room as she went, you know, in the bedroom. Uh, most of the time, you know, 90% plus, she just left me and Denise at home. And this, and when I say that, she would leave us at home for days at a time. So wow. when my crimes begin, mom had been gone for a few days. I was a kid that would post up at the window, you know, looking to see if she was coming home. Sometimes I'd walk out into the driveway because I, I took that serious that uh, she was going to leave someday and not come back. And uh, sometimes I'd walk out in the driveway, see if she's coming home. Denise, like I said, she was probably nine years old. She was the kid who was just angry all the time. So we didn't have any food in the house. Denise walks in one day and she's got this pack of pork chops in her hand. And I'm like, where'd you get that? And she's like, I stole it. And I was like, show me how you did that. So she, uh, it was A&P. She takes me over to this A&P grocery store and she uh, shows me how she's stuffing food down her pants. And I'm like, Hell, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So we start stealing food. And what happens is, is um, we get to where we're wanting a sandwich. And you, you can't stuff bread down your pants. You can't eat a sandwich on squished bread. There was a Kmart across the way. And uh, I told my sister, I said, let me see what I can do. So I walked into Kmart and got a hoodie off the rack, took the tags off. It was one of those zip-up hoodies. 
took the tags off, put the hoodie on and walked outside and got out with it. And uh, the way you steal bread is you, you go in the grocery store, you've got the hoodie off, you take the loaf of bread, you stuff it down the sleeve of the hoodie, throw the hoodie over top of your shoulder and walk out. I was 10 years old, 10 years wow. old when that happened. And, um, you know, in my presentation, I, I highlight that you know, I've got a lot of parents in that that audience, and and just think about that. You, if you've got a child that's around that age, what's your child supposed to be doing? You know, playing Xbox, PlayStation Five, uh, outside riding bikes if they're a little bit more, you know, human. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, I was the guy that was uh, that was breaking the law, and and what happens is my mom comes home. She finally sees all the stuff we've been stealing after she notices I'm playing it in television with all these games that I'd stolen from Kmart. She sees all the stolen loot, asks where it comes from. I'm the kid that stands up. We found it. She's like, no, you didn't stand that. Denise is the kid who stands up at nine years old, doesn't lie at all. She's half proud, half pissed off. We stole it. My mom looks at my sister, show me how you did that. And she I say she joins us. She starts running us as little shoplifters. And, and she goes to get her mom to do that as well and that's where my my crimes begin and and you know you've seen me talk before and i'm adamant about about closing that story by saying that i want people to understand that i don't blame my childhood for my choices as an adult when you're a child you can't help what the adults in your circle do you're going to you're going to do that but yep. when i became when i became that adult I had a choice. I could make the decision to lead a good, healthy, legal life, or I, may, I could make the decision to commit crime and victimize people. And that was the decision that I made. I, I chose to commit crime, to victimize people, and, and lead a very toxic, healthy life where not only damaging myself, but anyone and everyone who came within my circle. Um, so that that's my sister, for example, she had that exact same upbringing. She, uh, other than that shoplifting, Denise never broke the law again. She goes off to be a teacher. She's a good parent. She's got anger issues. Of course she does. I mean, you don't walk away from that without, uh, you don't walk away from that without some sort of damage. Yeah, you know, and and I just want to I just want to share a perspective with the with the with the group here um, because we spend a lot of time internally trying to figure out when faced with a decision, why do some people do the right thing and why do someone some people do the wrong thing? And in the world of um, you know accounting, you know, it's committing fraud and stealing money and all that and all that sort of stuff. And I wanted to share two stories with the group, two stories of people who have both been on this on this show before. Um, and it's going to it's going to um, reinforce some of the points you're making, because the other thing I want to make, too, is I've watched probably I've I've if I've watched a large chunk of of the interviews that you've done, Brett, okay. and I've never heard you made excuses on anything. I think the the viewpoint from your side is you made mistakes. You did your time in prison. You're you're continuing to pay back, you know, the the people and the institutions that you stole money from. But you've never made excuses for you never made excuses for what you've for 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 what you've done. Right. Um, so we're not trying to make excuses here, but we're just trying to. I just want to share perspective so that people understand, and and it kind of reinforces what your view well, and, 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 and what there, you're there, saying. There, there's no excuse for for victimizing someone, and and I want to be clear too. It's not as if I'm an idiot. I I had I, I I'm I'm very intelligent. 
I had opportunities and I just chose that path of crime. So it, it's make make no mistake. There's yep. there's no excuse for my actions in, as, as far as committing crime and hurting people. None at all. So the first story I'm going to share is uh, one of the guys who's been on the show. He's an ex RCMP uh, an ex DEA agent in the U.S. Um, and Chris tells the story of his first drug bust he ever did. Breaks down the door of the house, catches a drug dealer. The drug dealer has $500,000 in cash and $500,000 in coke. And Chris is about to arrest this guy. And the drug dealer says to him, Chris, I have an idea. He says, how about you take the cash and I take the coke and we go our separate ways. And what did Chris say when, when, it's, when, when that happened? Chris said, he goes, I got a better idea. He goes, how about I take the cash, I take the coke, and I haul your ass off to jail. And so he chose to do the, he chose to do the right thing. So I had asked Chris, I said, Chris, at that singular instant, I said, what made you do the right thing? And he didn't say, oh, it was all this training with the RCMP and all this training you know, with the DEA. That's not what he said at all. The answer was simple. Is the answer says Scott? The 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 answer is 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 very very basic. He goes, my mom and dad. He goes, they taught me when I was five years old what was what was right and what was wrong. He says, that's why at that particular instant, I did what I did. The other story I'm going to share is we just had Jim Campbell on. So Jim Campbell is a Bernie Madoff expert, and I, I tell he he spent he's done a lot of interviews with people who have committed uh, white collar crime. I, I, I tagged him as the uh, with the uh, with the with the name the, the the fraud whisperer. So if you've seen the horse whisperer, he's the fraud whisperer. So um, he spent tons of time with Bernie Madoff when Bernie was in prison, and and I got talking with Jim about this, and I said, Jim, you know, when you know when push comes to shove, you know, why do you think people make the right or the wrong decisions? And say, so, and he said, Scott, he goes, turn to you know page three in my book where I dedicate my book. And here is his words. So I'm going to read you his words. He says, who did he dedicate the book to? He says, he says, to my dad, who gave me the moral foundation Bernie Madoff so solely lacked. So point being to everybody out there is that the impact that your parents have on, on their children, especially at a young age, is extremely significant and i would say if you choose to make the decision to become a parent it is one of the most important decisions you will ever make in your life because the impact that you have on your kids especially three four five six years old is 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 significant and again we're not here to make excuses as brett says doesn't make any excuses but again it's it's important to understand and i would go so far as to say this brett is that if i grew up in your household as opposed to the household i grew up in i would not be sitting in this chair today a hundred percent certainly I can, I can say that. So as we dip into the next kind of stage of this and going into, you know, the, the life of crime, again, I think it's people, it's important people understand that because again, you go back to the impact on your parents, it's scientifically proven. The impact on your parents has a dramatic impact on, especially again, young, young kids. So I just wanted to share that before we go, before we go, uh, before we go too far into how things turn into, uh, into cybercrime. All right. Uh, no. And, and Hey, I, I, I appreciate that. I do. It's um, I've got two stepsons. I've got three. I claim two because the, uh, the third was already in the, uh, the military when I met his mom. And um, I have, I have no clue 
about how to raise a child. None. Um, what I what I take the uh, the philosophy of uh, I'm not here to be your friend. I'd like to be. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to make sure that you can be a productive human being. And uh, I make sure that anything that I do, I, I've never touched the boys, anything else like that. But I, I make sure that uh, that anything that I do is that decision is based on love. If I'm angry, I'll 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 step aside for a bit, calm down before I come back. And it's not like I don't get angry. It's it's you know, typical not anymore, but a few years ago with my with my youngest Carson, I wanted to kill that kid probably once a day. So I would have to take a pause every now and then. But uh um uh, Truth of the matter is, he's a, he's a great kid. He is. He's he's a great kid. He's he's eighteen now, and um, he's he's he he's not as focused as I'd like him to be, but he's getting there. And I I have uh, complete faith that he'll get there. Uh, my my middle one, uh, Brendan. He uh, this is a as a as a kid when uh, when he's uh, he's twenty. I say kid. He's twenty four, twenty five. Um, we didn't have the money to, to pay for his college, you know, cause I was just starting out getting, getting, you know, I've only been doing this thing about six years. So we didn't have money when he first started college to pay for it. So he's put himself through college. Not only that, but he's, uh, he's put himself through flight school. He's paid for all of wow. that. Um, so I'm very proud of the, I'm very proud of these boys. I'm even very proud of, of the third one that I don't claim because I didn't know him, you know, as a child, uh, uh, all three boys are outstanding. I, I attribute that to a lot to their mom, but, um, you know, my angle of that is, you know, just making sure that, uh, any decision is based on love and that, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that, that you guys have that guidance to be that good human being. And, uh, you're right. You know, I, I didn't have that. You know, you told that story about the cop with the DEA, my dad, <laughs> <laughs> my dad had wanted to be a cop too why he wanted to be a cop in miami so he could happen upon a drug deal keep the cash wow. and let the other guys keep the drugs and walk away that was his entire plan so i mean that happens um, absolutely so you know i know I, I did not have that uh i did not have that uh that type of good environment like that and uh, I wish I had, but, but that being said, uh, well, you don't get to you, choose it, right, Brett. It's not, it's not something you choose, right? Like you don't but, choose your parents. You know you what know, I mean? I understand too, that it's, uh, there are people who have had much worse upbringings than me and they have turned out to be very productive human beings that, that have not hurt people or committed crime things like that. So I, I, while I agree with you that, that, that parents absolutely, absolutely, they make a difference there. There's, there's something else there too. And I'm not quite sure what that is. I think it's the, uh, the nature versus nurture thing, but uh, certainly the parents are instrumental in how that child will turn out to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did life turn into cybercrime? When did, when did, when did you go from stealing bread uh, and stealing video games at uh, at Kmart to life of a life as a cyber criminal. Well, here's what you got to know. All right, so you hear this argument all the time. You know, if someone's hungry, is it wrong to steal food? And I would say no, it's not. All right, because I still have that situational 
type of moral compass that's 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 inherent inside of me. I would say no, it's not. But the problem with crime is that why steal baloney when you can steal steak? <laughs> Right. If you're going to steal something, at least steal something that's tasty. So that's that's a lot of the issue. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. So, you know, I'm the kid that uh, it, it starts with shoplifting, with boosting food and video games and stuff like that. But everyone on that side of the family was involved in crime. So I grew up. This kid in, in eastern Kentucky that that had a basis i grew up knowing how to do insurance fraud faking accidents faking stolen cars burning homes for cash i grew up knowing how to uh, to um, commit charity fraud forge some documents um, illegally strip mining coal drug trafficking stuff like that i had a basis for that um, i faked a car accident in the mid-1990s i faked a car accident to get the money to get married and moved from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky to go to university. And, uh, you know, I told my wife, I, I'm the guy that um, up until I met my wife, Michelle, now, I had never been in a healthy relationship. You know, you uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, you marry your mom. You know, you look for that, that, that partner that's kind of like your mom. Um, I'd always chosen these toxic relationships. Uh, and it was me. It wasn't them. It was me. Uh, so, so my wife, my first wife, Susan, got married to her, and uh, you know, told her, "Hey, don't worry about working. I got it. You know, don't worry about the cooking and cleaning. You just go to school." So here I am, sixty-hour week job, eighteen-hour class load, uh, all the cooking and cleaning, and something had to give. And what gave was the was the job and that proclivity toward fraud that I've already had. You know, got to eat. I was doing these uh, these little scams around Lexington, Kentucky. I had set up my own fake charity. I was doing uh, check kiting stuff like that, and and not doing really well. Um, I had uh, I was doing uh, back in those days. You had these. Um, well, you still got them. Those eighteen inch RCA satellite systems. There were these uh, these fly by night companies that you could either set up or work for, and kind of defraud people on that. I was doing stuff like that. Um, not doing really well, you know, barely making ends meet. And um, what happened was I found eBay and uh, I liked eBay a lot. It was right as eBay had transitioned. eBay used to sell just Pez dispensers. That's how the company started out. And then they, they transitioned over to this auction type of environment. And then today you've got eBay as it is. But uh, I found eBay right as it transitioned to, uh, to that auction type system. And liked it a lot. I'd never seen some sort of big marketplace like that before. I was like, man, this is great. Knew there had to be some way to make money on it. Didn't know how until one night I, I was watching, uh, I used to watch Inside Edition and Bill O'Reilly, the former Fox News host, before he got his ass in trouble for all that sexual harassment, he used to host Inside Edition. It was this 30-minute TV news tabloid show. And the one they were doing that night was on Beanie Babies. And back in the mid to late 90s, Beanie Babies were these high-dollar little stuffed animals, these collectibles that people were crazy about. Um, the one they were profiling was called Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant. It was selling for $1,500 on eBay. So here I am in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm watching the show, and I'm like hell, I got to find me a peanut. So I had it in my head. I was like, you know, I'm in Kentucky. People are kind of backward in Kentucky. I can probably find one in a bin someplace because not everyone knows what's going on with these things. So I was an idiot. So the next day I, 
I skip class. I, I go around to all these shops looking for this peanut elephant. Takes me about three hours to figure out, idiot, he's not in the shop. He's on eBay for $1,500. But they had these little gray Beanie Baby elephants that looked exactly the same, just a different color. So you buy a gray Beanie Baby elephant for $8. You stop by the grocery store on the way home, pick up a pack of blue dye, go home, try to dye the little guy. Turns out they're made out of polyester. They don't hold dye very well, and they float. So here I am. I've got this big mop, mop bucket. I've got the dye, the water. I'm trying to put the animal down in there. I've got a stick forcing it down there. It keeps floating up to the top. You pull it out. The ink's running off of it. Get it out of the bath. Looks like it's got the mange. The thing is, is I ripped a lady off of $1,500. I found a picture of a real one online, posted it. She thought I had the real thing. She wins the bid. And, you know, you mentioned that I was a social engineer. I am a social engineer. Um, I became a social engineer when I was a child because that type of environment, you have to know what those adults are thinking if you're going to survive that environment. You have to learn how to manipulate people. You have to learn how to read people quickly. So... When she wins the bid, social engineering kicks in. I wanted to put her on the defensive. I didn't want to be on the defensive. So I sent her a message. Hey, congratulations. You win the bid. Um, by the way, we've never done any business before. I don't even know if I can trust you. I'll tell you what. What I need you to do is, is go down to the U.S. Postal Service, pick up a couple of money orders totaling $1,500. They're issued by the United States government. They protect you. They protect me. You send those to me. Once I get them. I'll send you your animal. She believed that. She sends me the money orders. I cash them out. I send her this creature in the mail. Immediately get a phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response, lady, you ordered a blue <laughs> elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant and ripped her off. And, and I tell that story. I tell that story almost every single presentation that I give because that that story is a microcosm of the way scams work. First of all, that's the first lesson of cybercrime that most criminals learn. That lesson is if you delay that victim, you just keep putting them off. A lot of them, they get exasperated. They throw their hands in the air. They, don't, they walk away. You don't hear from them again. And they don't complain to law enforcement. And that's still the rule today. You know, victims tend not to complain. They don't know who to complain to. The law enforcement agency that they do complain to, maybe it's out of jurisdiction, maybe the dollar amount is not high enough so they don't do anything about it. I mean, there's tons of reasons that uh, that nothing happens to the criminal that's committing that crime. And I say that because I committed that crime under my name. Uh, yeah. I was very unsophisticated <laughs> at that point in time. Uh, the other reason I tell that story, like I said, it's a microcosm for the way scams work online. If you think about it, you've got that potential victim that's out there. That individual is wanting something. They have a desire for something. That want for that item, product, or service allows me as a criminal to establish trust with that potential victim. It allows me to, to get them to the point where they're not reacting logically or rationally. They're reacting emotionally because they want that item. And that allows me to come in and use, if you, if you think about the, the angle of trust in an online environment. Trust is established through technology tools and then finally social engineering. If you've got a potential victim, a victim that's out there that wants something, that desire for that, for that 
product, good, or service, that desire allows me to come in and much easily, much more easily establish trust. And that trust allows me to victimize that person. I, I can't victimize someone if I can't establish a degree of trust with that individual. Yeah. Okay. So that was the first crime I committed online. Uh, very unsophisticated under my name and uh, kept going, got away with it, kept going and got to where, um, so I was married for nine years and uh, lied to my wife the entire nine, my first wife. Uh, took her three years to find out what I did for a living. And that that three <laughs> years, so it starts with the Beanie Babies and I start doing eBay fraud. And I get, the, I get a lot of inspiration from Inside Edition and Bill O'Reilly. So it was not just Beanie Babies, it was baseballs. So the, the baseball thing, he was doing another show about Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, autographed baseballs, $60 a piece on eBay. And I'm like, I can do that. Skip class the next day, go down to the sports store, buy a case of baseballs, stop by the same grocery store, pick up a, a Sharpie, go home, try you know, start autographing baseballs. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. Looked at the signature. I was like, that doesn't look anything like their signature. So then I was like, okay, certificates of authenticity. So I, I print off my own certificates of authenticity list all the balls on eBay, sell them all. About two weeks later, knock at the door. And you know a cop knock. I mean, if you've never heard a cop knock, you know a cop knock. It's like, bam, 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 bam. So it was like, you know, seven o'clock at night. Me and Susan, we're, we lived in, a, in, a, in an apartment off campus. There's the cop knock. And Susan, even Susan knew what it was. And she looks at me and I'm like, hmm. So she doesn't say a word. I get up, answer the door. And at the door, there's a from the Fayette County uh, Police Station, the Sheriff's Office, there's uh, Sergeant Pat Tingle and a detective. And I, I got to where I knew Pat Tingle really well. And this, the detective, I don't even remember his name, but uh, Pat Tingle was the guy who did most of the talking. And uh, I opened the door and I was like, yes, sir. And he's like, uh, are you Brett Johnson? I was like, yeah. He's like, can we come in? I was like, yes, sir, come on in. So Susan, the entire time, not even saying anything, just, just looking at me. So... By this point, she, and she stands up at some point during the conversation, Conversation, she stands up. So these two officers come in, and they're like, uh, we'd like to talk to you about some baseballs. I was like, yes, sir. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. It's like, yes, sir. Where'd you get them? Bought them off eBay. Bought them off eBay. Yes, sir. With certificates of authenticity. Yes, sir. Mr. Johnson, we've got a sample of their signature down at the station, and it doesn't look anything like that. And I was like, huh. Well, it comes with certificates of authenticity. Mr. Johnson, um, we think you signed those baseballs. No, sir. And we think you printed off the certificates of authenticity. No, sir. The entire time, Susan not saying anything, just by this point, dead at me. Mr. Johnson, you're going to send these people their money back or we're going to put you in jail. Do you understand? Yes, sir. So they leave. Susan hasn't said a word. Finally, I look over at her. I was like, what? And she looks at me. She's like, you son of a bitch. That's why you bought those GD baseballs. And I'm like, yeah. So that's when she finds out I'm a criminal. And then the next six years were me saying, you know, I've stopped. I will stop. I'm going to stop just a little while longer until finally I turned into that, that complete ass. And I used to tell her, I was like, hey, you like spending the money, don't you? And um, after nine years, she leaves me. So that, that's, that's, my, that's where you know, cybercrime comes in is, is a start there. Uh, what happens is, is, you know, that, that six, you know, the, the next six years were that, that 
that real entry into cybercrime and becoming that internet godfather that the Secret Service called me. Um, so it, it transitions from eBay fraud over into selling pirated software. Pirated software le leads into installing mod chips. So, you, so mod chips were little chips that you'd solder onto uh, the circuit board of first gaming systems so you could play pirated games. And then finally, uh, cable television boxes so you could watch all the pay-per-view. And then finally, that led into programming satellite DSS cards. Those 18-inch RCA satellite systems, you could pull the access card out, program the card, turn on all the channels, all the pay-per-view. Started doing that at about the same time that a Canadian judge ruled that it was legal for Canadian citizens to pirate those signals. This idiot actually said in court that it was that since RCA didn't sell the systems up there, that his citizens could pirate the signals. And what that actually does is, and you see the same thing going on today. What that did was, is that little, that set up a little cottage industry in the United States. You go down to Best Buy, you buy the system for $100, take it out of the parking lot, open the system up, pull the system out, pull the access card out, throw the system away, program the card, ship it to Canada, $500 a pop. Started doing that, making a lot of money, had so many orders, could not fill them all, and thought to myself, and I mean, I quickly, quickly thought to myself, why do I need to fill any of the orders? They're in Canada. I'm down here. Who are they going to complain to? It's illegal. So I didn't fill any of the orders, stole even more money, and got worried about how much was coming in. I thought uh, I was going to be looked at for money laundering. Figured the best thing that I could do is get a uh, fake driver's license, use that to open up a bank account, Lauder the money through the account, pull the money out of an ATM, and had no idea. I was at university, had no idea where to get a fake ID. So uh, got online, looked around, thought I found a guy, sent him $200 in my picture, and the guy rips me off. And uh, yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I laugh about it today. Today, 20 some years later, I am still pissed off about that today. And uh, back then, I was so angry that the end result was Shadow Crew. So if you if you if you look at cybercrime, there's actually three sites that start modern day cybercrime as we know it. There's Counterfeit Library, Shadow Crew, and then Carter Planet. Uh, Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew, I ran both of those sites. Okay, so before these sites come into play, specifically Counterfeit and Shadow Crew, the only avenue you had for some sort of organized online crime, and all crime online is organized, every bit of it. The only avenue you had for that was IRC, Internet Relay Chat, this rolling chat board where you had no idea who you were talking to, if you could trust that individual, if that individual had a product or service, if they had it, if it worked, or if they were just going to rip you off because everyone there was a criminal. Those two sites, Counterfeit and Shadow Crew, gave a trust mechanism for cybercrime, which is a necessity. So, so what Shadow Crew specifically did was it gave a, a large communication channel, this forum type structure where individuals from different time zones could reference conversations days, weeks, months old. They could take part in those conversations, ask questions, learn from those conversations. You knew by looking at someone's screen name what the skill level of that person was, what the history of that person was, if you could learn from, trust, and network with that individual. We had vouching systems in place, review systems in place, escrow systems in place 
all with that singular purpose of establishing trust with one criminal and another when they would not know each other's name, not know what each other looked like, and never meet each other. So that's what Shadow Crew did. Um, to me, that's the primary, if you want to call it accomplishment, of Shadow Crew. Now, Shadow Crew was also the first online criminal marketplace of its type as well. Uh, Shadow Crew went on to make the front cover of Forbes, August of 2004. Headline, Who's Stealing Your Identity? October 26, 2004, the United States Secret Service arrested 33 people, six countries, six hours. I'm the only guy publicly mentioned at that point as getting away. They picked me up February 8, 2005. And they ended up giving me a job. And I'm the guy that continues to break the law from inside Secret Service offices for the next 10 months until they find out about it, at which point I go on a cross-country crime spree, still $600,000 in four months, wake up one morning on the United States Most Wanted list, go to Disney World, get arrested, sent to prison, escaped from prison, arrested again, as you pointed out. And finally served out my time. Uh, and, 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 and Brett, you tell a story as well about you walking into a local grocery store or a supermarket or whatever and literally seeing your picture. <laughs> if you was, see this person call, you know, the local, like that must have been quite the, quite the sticker shock when you looked up and saw that, uh, that staring you, you know, almost yourself looking right back at you, right? Yeah, so it was... Um... I remember it was it was in the post office saw the picture. Now the the grocery store that's where I saw that's where I knew that Shadow Crew had made the front cover of Forbes because what happened was our uh, the way Shadow Crew gets shut down we had this thing called the uh, the CVV one hack. All right, so on the back of your uh, your credit or debit card that magnetic stripe that's there there are three data tracks on that stripe. The first data track is the the customer's name. Second data track is the card number. There's a forward slash and then a 16-digit algorithm outside of that. Third data track is indiscriminate data. No one uses it. What's sold on criminal marketplaces is that second data track. It's called the dump, okay? So we were, we were the first group that really did a lot of phishing schemes. Um, you know, we were the ones that really found out how profitable phishing could be. And back then, when you fished someone out, you could ask 20 different fields. You could get mother's maiden, social security number, driver's license number, account numbers, passwords, logins, all this information. So we were getting card numbers and the PIN, but to encode that on a physical card, you have to have that complete track to data. That 16-digit algorithm, you have to know that. You can't just generate it. What we found out, though, where the CBV1 hack comes in we found out that none, and I mean none of the banks whatsoever, had implemented the hash for track two. What that actually means is, is that if you have the card number, you put a forward slash and any, and I mean any 16 digits out beside of it, it would encode so that you could take it to an ATM and start withdrawing cash. I see. And, and where, that, where that becomes profitable, to give you an idea of how profitable that was from a crime point of view. Before that happened, the only thing we could do with credit card and debit card numbers was CNP fraud, card not present fraud. So you'd get online with the credit card information and you'd order a laptop. And then you'd put that at laptop. Once you got that laptop in, you'd list it on eBay and sell it at 80% of retail. So a good carter, that's what you call those criminals, a good carter at that point in time would profit thirty to $40,000 a month, which is a wow. lot of money. All right. 
The CVV1 hack, though, when you're pulling money out of those ATMs, the CVV1 hack turned that into thirty to $40,000 a day, all right? And we had, there were a couple of thousand people that were doing this on, the, on a daily basis. So that got law enforcement attention. Our forum techie, a guy by the name of Albert Gonzalez, he was doing that type of, 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 of crime. He was in New Jersey one day, broad daylight. He stands at an ATM for over 40 minutes. And he puts one counterfeit card into the ATM, pulls out $20 bills, stuffs them in a backpack, and he does this for 40 minutes, one card after another. Meanwhile, it just so happens, just so happens across the street are two New Jersey cops who start paying attention to this kid. And they watch this kid for 40 minutes until finally one cop looks at the other. I think I'll go over and ask him what he's doing. Cop walks up to Albert. Albert's wearing a wig. He's got the disguise on. Albert falls apart right there. We did not know that Albert had gotten arrested. So what happens is the reason I wasn't arrested, I, I started this thing called tax return identity theft. And basically at that point in time, it was filing tax returns using the, the information of dead people. And I was stealing some weeks. I would steal up to $160,000 a week. While I was doing that, we had also started to see law enforcement coming into the shadow crew environment. We had the IP addresses because back then law enforcement didn't understand the computer security either. So we would see the raw IP address of the Pentagon, of the Secret Service, of all these different government agencies that were, that were visiting the environment. At the same time, we had this guy. Back around 2003, 2004, Paris Hilton had her T-Mobile phone list published. And there was a lot of news about that. That was one of our guys that did that. That same guy who went by the screen name of Enhance, that same guy had intercepted text messages of the United States Secret Service investigating <laughs> Shadow Crew. So we knew the end was nigh. And uh, not only that, but I was at the top of the food chain and I got worried, I, I kept I kept worrying about RICO, you know, these racketeering charges. I'm going to be charged for everything in this environment. So because I was stealing so much money with tax fraud, I stepped aside. I retired. My retirement date was April 15th of 2004. And uh, that was the tax day, you know. So um, I retired and stepped away. And that's that's the reason that I wasn't arrested with the rest of the Shadow Crew guys on that uh, October 26, 2004 date. Um, but that, that's what happened. That's how we got caught. Um, any questions about that? I mean, that's, that's a hell of a story. But, the, the, uh, the, the, only thing, the only other thing I wanted to and ask you on this um, was, because I think it's a, good, it's, a good, um, it's a good point to introduce this, is, is where the dark net fits into all this. Like the history of the dark net and obviously shadow crew and everything, you're not going to find those on Google. Right. Um, you, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about how the dark net fits in the history of the dark net, sure. where it comes from and how it fits into what, what, what you were doing. Okay. So, so with shadow crew, shadow crew was, was a surface website. So if you, if you look at the internet today, you've basically got three different layers of the internet. You've got the surface web. The surface web is that is anything that Google can find. So anything that you can search Google for, and it pops up, that's the surface web. All right. And that, that sounds big. But that's only about four to five percent of the overall internet. All right. Wow. The rest of the internet is this deep web. 
So anything that Google cannot index, so you think about emails, you think about bank account logins, you think about anything that's behind a paywall, like for Netflix or Hulu, those, those movies, that is deep web stuff, all right? So that's not illegal. But inside of the deep web, you have this thing called the dark web. So the dark web, the United States military, the U.S. Navy creates this thing called the Tor browser. Tor stands for the onion router. The idea being your IP address for your computer, your IP address is wrapped in layers of encryption and other IP addresses like layers of an onion. The idea being if you, if you wrap it enough times that it becomes very difficult and very expensive to figure out who that real person is. And the U.S. military developed this so that intelligence operatives could communicate with each other without being identified. That's why it was initially developed, all right? And the U.S. military created it. Now, after a few years of this, it goes open source, and they, they released it to the, to, the, to the world at large so that primarily whistleblowers could use it or that people behind other countries' firewalls could use it to get outside and get the real internet, to get word out, to see what was happening in the world besides what Iran or North Korea or, or Cuba or places like that wanted you to think was going on, okay? So a very, very legitimate reason for that to exist. The problem is, is that if you've got a product or service that can be used to make you anonymous or to help you launder money, the first adoptees are criminals. And the only thing you need to look at to know that is back with the beepers. So a lot of beepers were owned by drug traffickers because it helped them remain anonymous. That's exactly what happened with Tor. Now, Tor comes to uh, to 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 fruition while I was working with the United States Secret Service. We got these memos in that were warning us about the onion router. And back then, you have to realize that back then, very few people were using it. And, and the reason that what, what makes Tor successful, the more people that use it, the faster it becomes. Back then, there were very few people that were using it. So if you tried to load up a web page, it would take you a few minutes for that page to load up. Now it's much faster because you have much many more users that are online. So back then it wasn't really a useful thing at all. Um, what happens is Shadow Crew, Carter Planet, um, Carter's Market, Counterfeit Library, Scandinavian Carding, Mazafak, all these all these criminal communities before Tor comes into play all these criminal communities used to be on the surface web, all right? So it was very easy to find out where the servers were, very easy, you know? And as a matter of fact, when we ran Shadow Crew, we would look for countries where it was very difficult to get to the server. So for example, Carter's Market, their servers were located in Iran at one point, okay? Because they were very unfriendly to the United States interest. So it was very difficult to get the box physically. Um, once the onion router, once Tor comes into play, people find out, hey, we can actually host a website through Tor, which makes it very difficult if you set it up properly. It makes it very difficult to identify where that physical box is located. So it becomes much more difficult to track criminals down at that point. At the same time, if you know how to use Tor properly, it becomes very difficult to figure out who these users are. All right. You have to, um, and this is one of the things that, that, that law enforcement has been very good about worldwide. 
in order to find out who's using Tor, you have to control the nodes that are in play. So, so Tor works on a system of nodes, entry nodes and exit nodes. So as you come into that Tor environment, you come in through a node. And then as you exit, you go out through a different node. If a single entity owns a lot of the nodes, you can figure out pretty quickly who that individual is. So law enforcement over the years has been very good about working to control a number of the nodes that are out there. At the same time, the Tor project itself has had a few security lapses. It used to be that when you would download the Tor package, that it would be configured toward anonymity. And there have been a few instances over the years that the new packages that were released were configured differently so that while people were thinking that it was an anonymous thing right out of the box, you had to tweak it for it to be anonymous. And there has been some, uh, some question as to why that was released like that. Um, I have my own theories on that. But end of the day, what you see is that that, that was the traditional dark web. And it came with a lot of friction. So you had to configure it properly. You had to know how to use it properly in order to remain anonymous. You had to know where you were going because there's no search engine for the dark web. And, and to give you an idea of how big the dark web is, I'm sorry I got off track there. So the traditional dark web is inside of the deep web. The deep web is 96% of the internet. The size of the dark web, no one really knows. But estimates are that it's around 15% of the overall internet. So Google is four to five percent. The dark web itself is three times larger than the things that Google can find. So it's huge. All right. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. But the problem is, is there's no search engine. So you have to know the specific address you're going to. You have to know that. So there's a on the surface web itself, through Reddit, through different websites, there's there's these addresses that are posted for criminal environments. And it's not just criminal. New York Times has a site on there. There's some whistleblower sites. There's, uh, there's academic sites that are on the dark web, things like that. But the reason it's called dark web is absolutely because of the criminal activity that takes place there. That's why it gets its name like that. Criminals typically, what you see is that criminals will typically venture to the dark web to get whatever type of criminal tools or PII that they need to come back up to the surface web to commit the crimes that they're trying to commit. All right. So that, that's the function of the dark web itself. Now, the, the definition of the dark web has changed over the past few years because, again, Tor, the, the traditional dark web, has a lot of friction. You have to configure it. You have to know where you're going. At the same time, you've got to worry about law enforcement. Not only do you have to worry about law enforcement, but You've got a lot of criminals that are out there victimizing other criminals. You've got phishing attacks that are going on. So you've got uh, criminals that are creating phishing sites that look like dark web criminal marketplaces. You've got criminals that are DDoSing other criminals, trying to extort money out of those websites as well. So it becomes very problematic, and there's a lot of friction when it comes to using that traditional dark web. All right, Because of that, we've seen this migration over the past few years of criminals going to smaller and smaller encrypted messaging services. So think Wicker, think uh, Signal, WhatsApp, and today think Telegram. Telegram's the big one right now uh, because Telegram is almost friction-free. It's an app you can download to your phone. It's a, it's, you can run it on, on, your, uh, on your browser. It's encrypted end-to-end. -end. 
the person who owns that is a Russian who is very anti-law enforcement. He absolutely answers no subpoena requests whatsoever. It's very easy to come in. There's a keyword search function, so you can search for a keyword for whatever you want to. You can recreate channels very easily in that environment. Uh, because of that, that is now the Wild West of cybercrime. Most criminals are now migrating to Telegram, um, which is really interesting when you think about it. Uh, because of that friction-free environment, um, it, it's it's kind of like a boom economy right now for cybercrime. So who is the typical cyber criminal today that would hunt the large corporations? Like who is who is who is that typical person out there or entity out there that that is going to that's going to go after the large uh, the large companies or the small companies? It doesn't really matter, I guess. Sure. So so if you think about it, there's only seven different types of attackers online. You've got criminals like I used to be. You've got nation states, terrorists, hacktivists, uh, insiders, script kiddies, hackers for hire. So you've got those seven different types of attackers. You need to know why you're being attacked. So an online attack, there's only really three motivations. You've got status, cash, ideology, status. So understand these days that criminal communities, sometimes these communities are millions of members large. If you can wow. do something, if you can do something in that community that no one else can do, say you can you can build ransomware, deploy ransomware, build bot networks, launch DDoS attacks, build skimmers, um, use stolen credit card details to hit Amazon and Apple when no one else can do that. If you can do that kind of stuff, then you gain the respect of every single person in that community and that respect equates to profit. Okay, so that's a status-based attack. Cash-based attacks, that's 98% of the attacks that are out there. That's a criminal that's simply looking for profit. And then finally, you've got ideology. You know, you've, you've pissed someone off. You've got a different political opinion, something like that. Understand who's attacking you. Understand why they're attacking you. And then you'll understand the persistence of the attack, a cash-based attack. That tends to be lowest hanging fruit. That's a criminal that's looking for the easiest access that gives the largest return on that criminal access. So it's low-hanging fruit. That type of attack is not really persistent. If you just do the base minimum of security, you're no longer that lowest-hanging fruit. You're higher up in the tree, and typically that criminal will try to find an easier target. Compare that to a status-based attack. A status-based attack is not lowest-hanging fruit. It's somebody that's looking to impress his criminal peers. So it's not horribly persistent, but it's more persistent than that cash-based. It's something that I'm, I'm looking for something that I can do that impresses my peers. All right, so it's more persistent. Compare that to an ideological type of attack. That is an attack that's looking specifically at you. So it doesn't matter how much security you've got. It doesn't matter who the other players are in your vertical. I'm mad at you. I want to victimize you. And that is an attack that never goes away. That's something that's always going to be there. So understand why you're being attacked. Who's attacking you? You understand the persistence. And at that point, you design security based on that. All right. And understand what criminals are looking for, what these attackers are looking for. You're looking for information, access, data, or cash. So information, what can I find out about, out about you, your company, your employees? Access, can I get you to give me remote access? Typically, I can. Can I get you to plug a thumb drive into your network? Yes, I can. 
Yes, I can. I can just drop a thumb drive into a parking lot. One of your employees, they're going to pick it up. Somebody's going to plug it in. And if it's got any type of file marked salary on it, somebody's going to click on that file. So that's a fact. So that's access. Data. Do you have data that I can breach the company, steal the data, resell on the black market? Do you have data that you have to have to operate that I can lock down with the ransomware? And then finally, cash. Can I extort you for cash? Figure out where you are in that, I call it the criminal spectrum, but the criminal food chain, that cybercrime food chain. Because you have a place there. The way that I will victimize you absolutely depends on who you are and what you do. So figure out what your place is, design security around that as well. So that's, if you're wanting to know how criminals function, what we're looking for, that's, that's who the players are. That's the motivations. That's what they're looking for. Understand that criminals, you're, you're, you're more expert criminals that are out there. We, and I say we because I used to be one, we read white papers. We look at security services. We read indictments. We pay attention to the news about any type of breach that is out there. So we pay attention to all of this in order to figure out new targets. We may be, along with lawyers, we may be the only people who read terms of service on websites because you could find out a lot of information on terms of service. So these are the types of things that you do. And, and typically what happens is, is understand that, that a cybercrime community is very open source. We share and exchange information, understanding that if we educate everyone in that environment, everyone not only, not only, not only becomes more educated, but more profitable at the end of the day. So you share and exchange information. And the reason you do that is this thing I call the, the necessities of cybercrime. So if you think about it, three things have to take place for cybercrime to be successful. You have to gather data, you have to commit that crime, and then finally you have to cash that crime out. All three of those necessities have to work in conjunction or the crime fails. The problem is that a single criminal is not good in all three things. He's good in one thing, sometimes two. So he has to network with other individuals who are good in those areas where he is not. And that, again, comes back to that whole idea of trust in cybercrime. In order to network with someone, you have to be able to trust that individual. So you have to have that trust mechanism in place. When I talk about gathering data, that's the PII, that's the credentials, that's the banking information, that's also any type of tool that's needed to go on and commit that crime. That's ransomware. That is uh, Mimicast to harvest credentials out of RAM. That's Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance. It's spoofed phone calls, um, SOX5 proxies, RDPs, anything else like that. So that's gathering the data. Then you commit the crime, then you cash it out. So one person, one criminal, one attacker can't do all three things. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is a problem with a skill gap. That specific attacker doesn't understand or know how to do that one thing. Typically, the gathering the data. He doesn't know how to build ransomware. He doesn't know how to launch a phishing attack or a man-in-the-middle attack or deploy a botnet or something like that. Or maybe he can, but someone else is better at it. So he relies on the marketplace to fulfill that necessity. So it's a skill gap. The other, the other problem is a problem with geographic location. That specific attacker is in an area where they cannot fulfill one of those three necessities, typically the cashing out, putting cash in pocket, laundering money. So they rely on individuals, money mules, 
that are in areas where they can withdraw the, that money, uh, typically the United States. So that's what you look at. That's what attackers are looking for. And, and typically what happens is, is you've got, you find somebody that has an exploit, all right? Understanding that attacks, 90% of every single attack out there uses known exploits. It's not zero days. It's not unknown vulnerabilities. It's stuff that we know about that we've been told about for years that creates this threat landscape that's out there, okay? So 90% of every single attack uses a known exploit. So you've got someone in a criminal community that finds an exploit with a company, all right? So he shares that exploit with his inner circle, even though you've got a community that may be thousands of members large, he has an inner circle of 10, 20 people, and he shares this exploit with those 10 to 20 people. They mine it out as much as they possibly can within, within, within their geographic area until it's no longer viable for that geographic area. Then what happens? Then they either sell it as a tutorial or it makes its way into the overall cybercrime community, that entire circle or that, that community of individuals. At that point, they start hitting it as hard as they possibly can. Now, the problem is, is that they're hitting that one company. That one company, while cyber criminals are very good about sharing and exchanging information, the good guys are not. You've got privacy concerns, you've got regulations, but more importantly, you've got competitive edges. So companies typically do not share information with the other companies in their verticals because they like to practice this thing called the good neighbor policy, meaning that, hey, if I put enough security in place, these attackers will leave me alone and they'll hit my competitor across the way. So I'm not going to tell them a damn thing in the hopes that they'll leave me alone and hit them instead. So it's the complete opposite in the criminal. You're saying in, in the criminal environment, it's the complete opposite. It is an open book. Exactly. It's very open. Very open. Uh, matter of fact, uh, if, if today it's Telegram, but you can go to Dread on the traditional dark web as well. You can buy tutorials that teach you how to do a specific type of crime for as low as five to 10 US dollars. Okay. If you're not comfortable just reading a walkthrough, you can take live instruction classes. Those live classes range anywhere from $300 up to $3,000. A master fraudster will take you by the virtual hand, will teach you a class in through Wicker or Telegram typically, walk you through how to commit that crime. He even comes with a guarantee. If you don't make money on my program, on this class that you're taking, I will refund you your tuition. And they mean that because cybercrime today, if it were a country, would have the third largest economy on the planet. So customer service matters. But here's the thing. You don't have to spend any money at all. You can simply hang out in channel on the platform itself, ask questions, read, soak up that information, and you can make money that way because someone will always help you when it comes right down to it. You can say, hey, how do I use this credit card? Hey, how do I remain anonymous? And either that product or service will be off the shelf, or you'll have someone in channel that will help you through that. Wow. Yeah, it's it's messed up. It's messed up. And that's, that's the, one the, of the reasons that it's the third largest economy on the planet. The other, the other question I want to ask you, Brett, because I've heard you talk about this before, is that you have quoted a number of, of the success rate on phishing attacks. Right. And your number you quote is, 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 is quite high right. compared to what I would have thought. Maybe just talk about what that number is and why is it so freaking high? Like, aren't we smart enough on our side to 
not click on a link or not pick up that thumb drive or, or whatever, or not click on that salary folder that is just waiting for us. Like, like what's the number and why is it so friggin' high? Sure. So, and, and understand that these, these stats that I throw out there, it's not like I'm pulling them out of my ass. The, the phishing stat comes initially from Kaspersky. So Kaspersky has had, did a study and the study came out saying that 92% plus of every single breach begins with a phishing attack. And there's a reason for that. If you think about it, why would I potentially spend years trying to brute force my way past an industrial proof firewall when the only thing I need to do is send an email to someone sitting behind that firewall? It gives me the exact same access that I need, saves me time, effort, and money. So criminals are not, attackers are not you know, up for spending a lot of money or taking a lot of time because time equals money at the end of the day. So if you can fish someone out, why not take that easier route? If you're looking at spear phishing, if I'm looking to attack you specifically, it's about 87% effective. Wow. And it doesn't matter. Here's the thing about it. It does not matter how much cybersecurity awareness training you've got. It doesn't matter how educated or uneducated, rich, poor, whatever. It's still about 87%. And that this goes into social engineering. And I've talked about this before on my show in a few interviews. There is a difference between a criminal social engineer and a white hat social engineer or a gray hat social engineer. If you think about it, cybercrime succeeds based on social engineering. Without social engineering, a lot of it falls on its face because you have to be able to deploy that ransomware. You have to be able to get people to click on those links for phishing attacks. You have to get people to plug in that thumb drive, what have you, all right? And all of those are social engineering attacks. Yes, you can build ransomware all day long, but if no one will install it on their system, it doesn't really matter. And that's why you have ransomware as a service these days, because those developers have realized that, hey, yeah, we can build it, but we're not very good about it getting deployed. So we could just farm it out, sell it as a service and make a heck of a lot more money at it. So cybercrime is a service these days as well. But why, why does social engineering, I'm, I'm sorry, getting back on track. So a criminal social engineer, the motivation for that, understand that as that social engineer, I'm not trying to be flamboyant. I'm not trying to be big. I'm simply trying to get that potential victim to act in a way that I want them to act without them knowing that they're doing that. I want it to make, I want to make it seem like it's their decision to do that, that I, they're not being forced or, co or, or coerced into doing that. So it's a very small thing. All right. Compare that to the white hat social engineer, and you see this at black hat conferences all the time with the uh, the social engineering farm and all that, where they'll go out and they do these big, huge, flamboyant things, all right? That is not what social engineering is. It's not. You're, you're trying to just do the smallest possible thing that you can to get someone to act in the way that you want them to act without them knowing that they're doing that, okay? So that's how social engineering works, the differences between the criminals and the good guys when you teach these types of things, all right? Um, social engineering. You're looking to compromise the human, okay? That's what you're always looking at, and it's very easy to do that. I've got, uh, I don't have the slides on me right now, uh, but I've got two slides I typically show in a, in a presentation, and the slides are, 
I have two email addresses, gollum at anglerfish.com and gollum to anglerfish.com. And I ask people to point out the differences between the two email addresses. And the only difference that you see is that one of the emails doesn't have a dot above the I. And it turns out that that email is a Unicode domain. It's not an English alphabet I. All right. But it, it registers just fine, comes with security certificates, everything else. And that type of attack has been known about for years, for years. Again, 90% of every single attack uses known exploits. Well, that attack is $7 million a day. It's a $12 billion criminal industry. It's the number one way that business email compromise is committed today. So and it's understanding, it's a criminal understanding that if you're checking email using this thing, are you going to notice that there's not a, a dot above an I? No, you're not. If you're in payroll and you're going through 300 emails a day sometimes, are you going to notice that one of the emails doesn't have a dot above the I? No, you're not. That's got nothing to do with stupidity. It's got, it's got a lot to do with understanding that a, a criminal understands the technology and human psychology enough to manipulate you into giving up that information, access, data, or cash into not and, noticing that dot. And, in, and Brett, in that case, it's not so much clicking on a link. It's getting somebody to do what you want them to do, I guess, right? As you're right. saying, look, I'm going to email into payroll. I'm going to say, look, can you change my bank account? I, I moved houses. I, you know, I moved from X, X to Y. You know, my, my, now my bank account has also changed and therefore please change my direct deposit information. And somebody's not going to notice that dot above the eye missing and they'll just process it as is. It was, is that kind of how, is, is that kind of a, like a fair representation of how that would play out? It is. Uh, I was on um, I was on an interview the other day, uh, a panel, and and one of the people on the panel made the comment. Uh, everyone's talking about AI these days, and they made the comment. Well, you know, AI right now is being used to launch to build phishing pages and things like that. So that uh, you know, the it used to be you could look at the phishing page and you could tell by the spelling and the semantics whether it was legitimate or not. And now AI has fixed that. And I, I was sitting there the entire time thinking, dude. AI's got nothing to do with that. They, they've had the correct spelling and semantics down for a few years now. So if you're, if you're relying on, on techniques like that to catch attacks, you've already lost the game. Uh, it, it's understanding that, you know, from that, from that point of view, you've got a criminal, and it depends on how sophisticated the criminal is, how much work they want to put into it. Are they lazy? They're just throwing up any page, just uh, creating a, maybe a like domain so that instead of it being mike.com, they've got two ends next to each other, what have you. Um, or are they going the extra route to create the Unicode domain to, 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 to do a proper spoof? Um, how far are they going into that? You have to, to know who's attacking you, the sophistication level, the expertise of that, of that criminal that's out there, and understanding that, that the human being is always the weak link, always the weak link. So because of that, you need systems in place and tools in place that understand, that anticipate that the human being is going to screw up because they are. I'm not looking to hurt to, to compromise systems. I'm looking to compromise human beings. If I'm, if I'm trying to deploy ransomware by trying to compromise a system, that becomes very problematic. Instead, I want to make sure that that human being is going to plug in that thumb drive, click on that link, what have you. And that's much easier for an attack point of view at that point. So how do we protect ourselves then? 
if the human being if the human being is the weak link and it doesn't matter if you've got you know fort knox protecting your protecting your data if it all boils down to look end of the day humans make mistakes we all make mistakes you know what i mean i don't think it, it, it that'll be the case until the end of time how do we protect ourselves what's the is is there is there a silver bullet or yeah what what, what is what, what, how, how do you protect ourselves well there is no silver bullet you know you're, you've got 8500 security companies 8500 plus security companies out there and a lot of them are trying to tell you that the attackers are computer geniuses and able to break into any system you're not going to catch them but you know our tool that we sell can solve your problems. Well, that's what's called cybersecurity pillow talk. That's something you need to run from. That is, uh, there is no silver bullet. Uh, what I advocate is a layered approach to security. So think of an attacker as having a toolbox and in the toolbox, he's got that variety of tools that he uses to victimize you. So he's got the high level tools. You know, he's got Mimikatz, Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance, Side SQL Server. He's got all this crap out there. And then on the low level, he's got the social engineering tools. He's got the spoofed phone calls, the SOX 5 proxies, phishing attacks, things like that. He will choose the tools that are best suited for the job at hand. And typically, those are the low-level tools, typically. That being said, on the defender side, you need a toolbox with a variety of tools to counter those or mitigate those types of attacks that are out there. Layered approach, and I say layered approach because the idea is to create enough friction for that attacker that they find another target, all right? Understanding that every single tool and service that's out there, typically there are exploits or workarounds to bypass that if an attacker wants to put in enough effort to do that. So you have to have, you have to look at data. And when I say look at data, Jesus, I mean, <laughs> so... I worked for with a uh, with a Fortune 50 company, and we were looking at SOX 5 proxies. And uh, I remember having an argument with one of the engineers as we were showing these SOX 5s. And he was he was saying the entire time, he kept saying, well, we can see that. Well, we can see that. Well, we can see that that it's a data center, that it's not residential. We can see that it's a, that it's a proxy that's in place. And we carried on with this argument, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes until finally I was like, yeah, you can see it, but are you actually looking at that? when the orders come in with this, with these credit cards and he got quiet and he was like, well, no. And I was like, well, then it doesn't do any good if you can see it, but if you're not looking at it for the, at that point in time, right. And that was the end of the argument. Now that's important when you think about these man in the middle attacks that are taking place today. So today you've got criminals that because we read white papers, and, and it's not just the good guys that have been talking about doing away with passwords for a few years. Now you've got attackers that are out there that are, instead of looking for credentials so much, they're stealing the tokens of the sessions, the cookies. And they're, inject, they're doing a cookie injection on their browser, which allows them to bypass multi-factor authentication. It allows them to bypass the need for credentials. They just inject the cookie into their browser, come into your bank account, take it over and do whatever they want to at that point in time. Now, where that's important is, is that that attack is very difficult to stop. But if you're looking at the data properly, you can see a change in IPs. So it, there's absolutely a change in IP numbers. But financial institutions aren't looking at that because they've never had a need to look at that before. 
You know, you've got all these companies that are not looking at that type of, of change in IP because typically they're like, well, the cookie's static. The token's there. It's already been issued. So we don't have to worry about anything because the token is validated. But the problem is that now you've got attackers that are stealing those tokens. And because of that, there's a need to look at the data. So you have to look at data, understanding that that look, there are techniques to get around that, especially if the company's not looking at things. So that's just one layer. You look at identity verification. So, so uh, you, you look at the documents, understanding that, yes, documents can be forged. You look at uh, liveness detection, so the video selfie, understanding that there are ways to bypass that as well. You look at knowledge-based authentication, the security questions, understanding, again, that criminals can get the answers to security questions. So every single layer that you're implementing can be bypassed, but every single layer creates a different degree of friction for those attackers that are coming in. And if you create enough friction in that environment, you know, you use CAPTCHAs to, to try to mitigate bots that are out there. So every degree of friction that you can employ for against the attackers, not against legitimate users, every degree of friction that you deploy makes it harder for those attackers to come into your environment. And if you create enough friction, that will drive those attackers elsewhere because that friction equates to expense on the attack side. If it, if, if it takes more time, that means more money that the criminals are losing in your environment. And they're going to go elsewhere at that point. So that's what I advocate is that layered approach to security, creating friction on the attacker side, not on the legitimate user side. And if the MFA goes straight to your phone, does yeah. that does that help significantly over going it to your to your browser? Again, it, it's it it really depends on who the attacker is. There are ways to 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 bypass that, right? If I'm stealing the token, I don't have to worry about MFA. If I've got a one-time password bot and have depend on how that MFA is deployed, that allows me to get the the to bypass MFA as well. So if it's deployed by email, uh, spear phishing is 87% successful. So I can be lurking in your email to get the passcode at that point. So it really depends on how it's deployed, depends on who's attacking you, why they're attacking you. Is it lowest hanging fruit, just cash-based? I'm not going to put a lot of effort into trying to do all this stuff. Um, all of that comes into play. So you need to, it boils down to, you need to understand your place. As I said, you need to understand your place in that cybercrime spectrum. Why are you being attacked? Yeah. What are they looking for? That matters. If it's cash-based, a lot of this stuff can be mitigated where you're, you're very secure. If it's ideologically based, you are in a world of trouble. And this is something you have to be aware of. Now, now, you know, I said that, uh, you know, human beings can be compromised. That does not mean not to do cybersecurity awareness training, but understand that there is a difference between training for compliance and training for effectiveness. You know, compliance is great. At the end of the day, you can say you did something and everyone's on the same page. But there's a difference between the two. Um, that Fortune 50 company, when I worked with them, we had a phishing simulation and we sent out this email said, hey, we've added two more days of vacation time to the calendar. We didn't mention what the days were. Instead, down at the bottom was a PDF marked calendar. And the question was, how many people will click on that? And the answer was, everyone clicked on that. And the people who clicked on that got upset. They started to raise a lot of drama. This Fortune 50 company put out a memo apologizing for that phishing simulation. And they said, hey, we, we apologize. We'll never do this again. 
that's not what you want to do because that's exactly how you're going to be attacked. So you need to train for effectiveness as well. And it goes beyond just phishing. If you think about ransomware attacks, you need to be training for that attack because it's coming. So I, I worked with a, uh, I had a, a company, a, a, a medical goods company out of Knoxville, Tennessee, called me. They had been hit with ransomware. And um, they told me the company, it was the same ransomware group that hit the PGA. I asked them, I was like, hey, have you got backups? Yes, we've got backups. And then they got quiet and they were like, the backups are sitting next to the machines and they're encrypted as well. And then the next question was, well, how much is ransom? And the answer was too high for us to pay. We'll go out of business. And I don't know whatever happened. I, I, I handed them over to a, uh, to a ransomware negotiation company because that's all you can do at that point in time. Um, so you have to be able to, to know how to deploy those backups properly. You have to know what that actually means. There, there's another situation where a company, they get hit with ransomware. They've got backups deployed. So they start to reinstall the backups. You know, three days into it, they figure out that that 49 petabytes worth of data is just going to take 60 years to reinstall across that copper line because they've never tested that. Then you've got the other company that, yeah, we've got backups deployed properly, outstanding. Yeah, but, you know, the tool to reinstall the backups, it's encrypted. We didn't back it up. So you got to be you got to be testing these things. You got a lot of companies have simply they have a book on a shelf that they only pull off the shelf when they get hit. And when that happens, they don't know what to do. They've never ran the scenarios, anything else like that. So you have to be you have to be practicing these things and, and preparing for those types of attacks. So train for effectiveness and compliance at the same time. Well, I'm cognizant of time here, Brett. You, we're already over. We could go on for hours. It's uh, there's. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask two more questions if you sure. have if if you have time. Um, is advice to individuals? We talked a lot about a lot about companies. I've heard you talk about. Um, I've heard you talk about credit freeze. I've heard you mm -hmm. talk about a password manager. You seem to have, have are less are less positive on the password manager these days. I am. Um, but, 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 but again, if, if you had one piece of advice out there for individuals, because the other thing I'd learned, I Googled at one point is what someone can do with your SIN number right. if they have it. And the answer is they can do a lot a with lot. your SIN number and you can't replace that number, at least in right. Canada. Maybe it's different in the United States, but in Canada, that's not a number that you can just go and say, oh, I've been compromised. Give me a new one. You know, like cancel a credit card, cut it up and be done. You can't do that with SIN number. Advice to individuals on on, sure. on, on, on how to protect so themselves. In the United States, you can be reissued a new social security number. You can. It, it's a process. You have to be a victim of abuse, you know, scared for your life or a victim of identity theft, which is pretty common in the United States now. So you can get a new number issued. Now, that being said, a lot of people don't do that. Uh, in the United States, what I advocate and and whatever that that uh, that similar thing would be in Canada is what you guys need to do too. So the first thing is freeze your credit. Understanding that in the United States, credit freezes are free. So freeze the credit of every single individual in the house because children are the number one victims of identity theft. One in four, 25% of all kids will be victims of ID theft. So freeze the credit of every single individual in the house. Understanding that a credit freeze only stops new account fraud. So only new accounts works great for kids. As adults, we have existing accounts. We've got bank accounts. We've got credit cards. We've got all these existing accounts. 
a credit freeze does not stop fraud on that. So you have to monitor accounts and place alerts on those accounts as well. When I say monitor accounts, that's all accounts. It's not just bank and credit cards. It's your tax records. It's your uh, credit reports. It's your it's your emails. It's your merchant logins. You have to monitor these accounts as well. Place a, alerts where you can. For example, Discover Card has a $0 alert. If I go on the dark web, buy your, your Discover Card information for $12, which is what they sell it for. If I ping that card just to see if it's still alive, you'll get a text message saying, hey, someone's trying to take advantage of you. You can lock down the account from there. You mentioned passwords, and that's the big one. And you're right. I am not really big on password managers right now. I use a password manager and I use a, an authenticator in conjunction. Um, the problem is, is that 80% of the population worldwide uses the same or similar login and passwords across multiple websites. And this, the problem is this thing called credential stuffing. If I send out a phishing email from a financial institution, your level of awareness is high enough that you'll typically realize that's a phishing email. But if I send out a phishing email from, say, Hulu, level of awareness not nearly as high. You're probably going to look at it and say, Hulu, does anyone even watch Hulu? The only thing they've got is The Handmaid's Tale. And that second season sucked. And I mean, it did. For those who haven't seen the second season, don't bother. It's as bad as the last season of Game of Thrones. So leave it alone. Watch the first season. Read the book. You're going to be fantastic. But if you're using the same email and login across those websites, it's actually an automated program. That, that kid in his mom's basement, that you know, proverbial kid in his mom's basement that really doesn't exist, that attacker plugs those credentials in. It's automated. Those, the computer tries to log in to tens of thousands of different sites while he's playing his PlayStation 5 that he's stolen or what have you. He comes back. He's got your tax records, your bank account, your credit card accounts emails, Hulu account, everything else across the board. So you have to practice good password security. Now, we have had a lot of problems recently with password managers. That does not mean that every single one is bad, but we've had some issues. Um, you need to figure out what is good password security for you. It could be an authenticator. It could be pass keys. I like the idea of pass keys. I think they've been implemented a bit too quickly. Um, pass keys, password manager, authenticator, something along those lines. So that's that's the big one right there. And then later on, you know, you look at multi-factor authentication. Uh, understanding that multi-factor, a high adoption rate for multi-factor is about twelve percent on a platform. So not a lot of people, you know, deploy multi-factor. Understanding, again, this is that layered approach to security. Every single one of those things that I talk about, every single one can be bypassed. But the idea is to create enough friction for any attacker that they find a different target to hit. All right. So those are the big things right there. So freeze credit, monitor accounts, place alerts, password security, multi-factor authentication, and then go from there. And then understanding that it's at, it's developing a degree of situational awareness online. In, in our physical world, we tend as human beings to have pretty good situational awareness. For some reason, that does not translate to an online environment very well, but we have to get there. We have to understand that, hey, in these online environments, yeah, trust is important. Verifying is more important, 
but there are predators that lurk in these environments as well. So we have to develop that situational awareness overall. If we can do that, I think that we become much more secure and safe online overall. Yeah. Last point. Um, I want to just give you the opportunity to say, look, if people want to learn more, again, the, the, the Brett Johnson show, the things that the thing that you do, um, the, 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 the content you put out on the Brett Johnson show is, is really educational. It's, it's, it's really, um, it's really good, but maybe just, you know, give a perspective on, on what you're doing now, Brett. And, and if people want to find you, where can they, where can they find you? Sure. So, um, here, here's the thing. If anyone has a, um, an issue, cybersecurity wants to talk, what have you, my show, the Brett Johnson show has been kind of, kind of categorized as a, as a support group that's wrapped in cybersecurity veneer. And there's a lot of truth to that because I, a lot of it is, is my journey of trying to, uh, to become a better person overall. But I, I absolutely talk about cybersecurity, cybercrime, things like that. And uh, you can find me on the Brett Johnson Show. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you catch plat, uh, uh, content. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just look for Brett Johnson. You can go to anglerfish.com, P-H-I-S-H. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. If you're an individual, if you're law enforcement, I absolutely don't charge anything for that whatsoever. If you're a company, though, if you've got a paycheck, I've got something I can do for you. But uh, the thing is, is that uh, I, I am I'm adamant. I don't want to be remembered as the guy who stole everything. I, I want to be remembered as a guy who was able to turn things around. Uh, you may have to chase me down a little bit because I, I, I I'm pretty busy, but I'll do whatever I can to help you. Um, if you've got a problem that's going on, what have you, please reach out to me. I'll do whatever I can to help you. And I, I really mean that. Okay. So uh, um, that being said, I, you know, you, you mentioned it at the beginning of the show. Uh, I close my show out by saying, stay safe, secure, and vigilant. But more importantly, at the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. And I mean that. I mean, that's that that should be the the number one thought in all of our minds every single day. And it took me, I'm 53. It took me many, many years to to really realize that. But now that I have realized that, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there should be nothing more important in this world than than helping each other and and just making sure that we're trying to do the right thing every single day. Agreed. I couldn't finish it better than myself, uh, Brett. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's excellent. So again, thank you very much, Brett. We really appreciate your time uh, this morning. We've went way over. Uh, and I apologize <laughs> again. I know you got a busy day, uh, but, but thank you. I think again, the advice uh, that you provide to the group is, uh, is quite uh, good. So, so thank you. And, uh, and good luck at your keynotes. I know you got a busy, uh, busy couple, couple days. So, uh, but, but thanks again. We appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate it. Okay. Great.